Tonight I would like to extend the uh, talk on compassion uh, by uh, speaking about what I will title tonight the house of self. Sitting with you for over the last days and especially meeting with you in groups has uh, given me so much um, faith in the process that we're engaged in and, and has uh, just reinforced the paradox that Anna spoke of last night that the, I'll put it in the terms of a Rumi poem where he says, the cure for pain is in the pain. Uh, good and bad are mixed. If you don't have both, you're not one of us. And how that, how that um, dealing with the good and the bad, the pleasure and all the worldly winds that blow uh, through our minds in the course of the retreat, I have seen how it has really touched you, how it has, uh, it has touched your hearts. And I've, I can see, and we can see more, easier than you can, that the lights are on. And, uh, and the tenderness and the, the vulnerability and the honesty which is really our birthright to be that way. It's not, a, it's not just because we're on retreat. We're meant to be tender. You know, there's a beautiful teaching from a teacher named Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj. Uh, uh, not Sri Nisargadatta. Uh, it's Trungpa Rinpoche. That's kind of far afield. But Trungpa Rinpoche <laughs> had this uh, wonderful book called Shambhala, Sacred Path of the Warrior. Some of you may have read it. But in the book, he talks about the path of warriorship. And a warrior isn't somebody who's all pumped up. And, and when, when a warrior becomes a warrior, you don't hear Beethoven's symphony. It says when a warrior is a warrior, they awaken to the tenderness of the heart. And he, he uses the metaphor, or he likens it to a reindeer who's just growing their horns. And at first they're these very raw, lumpy, gross a little bloody, and they don't quite know what to do with them. But as the horns get longer and, uh, and more formed, the reindeer begins to realize that it, it's supposed to have horns. And, and, he, and it's, that's what reindeers have. And in the same way, when we begin to open to the tender heart of warriorship, uh, we begin to see that we are meant to be tender. And we need to to be passionate about that, not to, not to hide, not to, not to contract. So I've been able to see that um, in the meetings with you, and it's beautiful. It makes, it, it just, it's incredibly um, inspiring. In addition, I've noticed that uh, most of you are seeing much more clearly the different stories that play through your mind. Would you say that's true? And perhaps you're beginning to, to clarify your understanding a little more, to see, well, what is that story? Is that just a story? Is that me? Well, if I'm not my story, who am I? And we begin to come out of the, the tangle of confusion. And to me, the most compassionate thing that we can do as a human being is to 
come out of confusion, is to, is to be able to see clearly. This is why wisdom and compassion are so closely married. Because our suffering, the going around and around and around of endless cycles of waiting for a future that never arrives, waiting for a person who never arrives, waiting to become, waiting to get rid of, that round of, of suffering is born of confusion. It's born of a case of mistaken identity. It's born of a case of a mistaken view of where happiness is to be found. And it's clarity of perception. It's seeing clearly how it is our mind works, seeing what it is that leads to happiness, what it is that leads to suffering, what in our own minds is leading to happiness and leading to suffering in our own experience. It's through clarity of perception that our hearts open. And of course, if my heart is open to me, it's also open to you. And then, as Anna shared last night, then we enter our. We stop feeling that same kind of dividing line. We stop thinking that we're the one wave that's arisen on the ocean and somehow gotten separated from the ocean. We stop thinking that we're in this little narrow vortex of just me, this narrow little world of my internal, of my internal drama, so isolated, so apart from, so cut off from the flow of life. So clarity of perception is really everything. That's what unleashes our love. That's what unleashes our com- uh, compassion. In the teachings, there are actually four common misperceptions, but I'm going to name the the three primary uh, kinds of misperceptions that keep us locked in this wheel of confusion. The first one we've talked endlessly about. The tendency, well, this particular misperception is about the law of impermanence. One of the central teachings, one of the most liberating insights that the Buddha had it started in more gross ways. You know, as I mentioned the other night, when he saw sickness, old age, and death, he saw it on a more macrocosmic level. But the, what really began to turn his mind toward a deeper understanding of the nature of reality was seeing the reality of impermanence, how everything has the nature to arise and pass away. Our number one misperception is taking that which is impermanent to be permanent. And because we make that first misperception, taking that which is impermanent to be permanent, the second misperception is we take that which is unreliable, unsatisfactory, cannot give us lasting satisfaction. We take that which is unreliable and unsatisfactory to be the source of happiness, a reliable source of happiness. So we fail to see anicca, we which is impermanence, we fail to see dukkha, unreliability. And finally, the third common misperception is that we take that which is not self, that which is marked by selflessness, we take it to be self. We take it to be me and mine. And because of that, we... Again and again, as the Buddha put it, we, we take birth into uh, a false idea of ourselves. 
there was a beautiful song that the Buddha shared, and he may have meant it in a much more ultimate way when he said it, but it's something that we can begin to see moment by moment in our life. But this is the song that he shared uh, after his awakening. As often, it's all through history, those who have an, an epiphany, a big awakening, often will let out some kind of poem or some kind of song of realization. This was the Buddha's. He said, through, uh, through many births, in the, through many births in the wandering on, I ran, seeking but not finding the maker of this house. Dukkha, O oh house builder, he said, you've been seen. You shall not build another house again. Dukkha is, oh, I, I, I messed it up a little bit. Dukkha is birth again and again. O oh, house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build a house again. Your rafters are broken, which is um, the defilements, all the, the things that confuse us. The ridge pole destroyed, which is ignorance. The mind gone to the unconditioned, to the unconstructed to freedom. Uh, The mind gone to the unconditioned to craving, which is another way of saying trying to get somewhere, to cravings cessation, it has come. Through many births and the wandering on, I ran seeking but not finding the maker of this house, this house of self. Dukkha, which is suffering, dissatisfaction, stress is birth again and again. O house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build another house. Your rafters are broken, ridgepole destroyed, mind gone to the unconditioned. To cravings, cessation it has come. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about this tonight. Because we come in our lives with a very deeply conditioned, conventional view of reality. In every conversation, in order for us to have a conversation we say to each other, my thoughts today, my feelings, my sensations, my past, my future, my plans. We are constantly doing what some describe as meing and mying. And our speaking very casually as though when we speak of this I and when we speak of this me, we know what we're referring to, even though no one has ever seen one. Where is the I that's hearing right now? Where is the I that is feeling sensations? Where is that? What is that? What do we find on, on present evidence? Where is this? What is this I? So the Buddha was faced with the same conventional view of reality. Everything is about I and you. And, it, we, and even throughout the, the Buddha's life and throughout all of our lives, we will continue to use 
when we talk about ourselves, we'll talk about me, my, and mine. This is our probably the central words that come in our conversations. Uh, I'm giving a discourse tonight. So that's the conventional view of things. But we look at our, what we call me, we look at what we call mine, we look at what we call I a little bit differently when we examine meditatively. We examine meditatively uh, with the willingness to suspend all our assumptions about who and what we are. Even the idea, we, even as we sit here, we question the very idea, which it really just is, a useful idea, but we suspend even the idea, and try it for a moment, the idea of being a person. Notice what happens after the last moment that you thought of yourself as a person and before the next moment that you pick it up again. What do you experience? Anybody willing to say? Nothing. Nothing. Okay, so on, on present evidence, are you a person? What can you say about yourself? And let's even, let's even play with the idea of suspending the view that you're a, if you're a man, you're a man. Or if you're a woman, a woman. Or any other roles that you've played. And maybe even the most important one for the purpose of our conversation is suspend the idea of being a meditator. What do you experience when you, when you have, are free of these ideas? What's still there? Anybody willing to say? Awareness. Awareness. We can all say, I am. It's still words though. It's, we can remove those words. We may not realize it, but that unquestioned belief in the in the uh, conventional view of reality, which is clearly, I'm a man and there, there are other men here and there are women. That's the conventional view. But that's not, that is a, a view that is born of, that depends on memory, that depends on a conceptual overlay on the reality that's, that's here, that is really in its most intimate and immediate, indescribable. And part of our practice is to begin to see the difference between that indescribable reality that we are and the, the conceptual reality, the way we usefully try to make sense of it. So we don't have to abandon the whole conventional world of men, men women, all the distinctions. But meditatively, we want to look a little bit more closely at what we call in this case, what we call ourself. This is exactly what the Buddha did, stumbled on it as he sat under the Bodhi tree. He took everything that he had up until that point taken to be himself, 
just as we did when we came on retreat here. And we basically used the same tools of, of observing power, just being mindful. And I think I described it a little the other night. He, he paid attention. And of course, if you pay attention, what do you notice? You'll notice a field of sensations. Now, sensations is a word for these little things that we experience. That are, it's a great word, sensation. That pretty much sizes up our direct experience of our body. Because we don't really experience body. Body is an idea uh, that, we, that gets overlaid on this field of, of sensations. And then you could say, if we're really playing with it, we don't experience sensations. It's hard to put in words what we experience. Yet there is a very useful, wonderful language of, um, of consciousness, meditative language. And so we have to begin to develop a language, but the language is still just an approximation. It still doesn't quite capture it. So the language of tingling, stabbing, burning, searing, vibrating, pulsing, zooming, expanding, contracting, all of these, all this phenomena. And as the Buddha paid attention to this, the whole idea of body started to melt away. As, as many of you described in your own direct experience, several people came into the group and said, I was sitting there and, and there was, it stopped being a sense of a body. There was just this kind of sensations. There was what sometimes called rapture, vibrating, this kind of smooth thing that rose through. And just to say that rapture is not always pleasant. Uh, it sometimes comes with, with um, being more collected and composed. But that's, uh, that's different than what we normally think of as body. And the Buddhists began to see there's a difference between concepts of things and the reality. So often when we give walking meditation instructions, in many retreats we give much more emphasis to the details of the, of the steps. In this retreat we are much more emphasizing using the anchor of awareness and then just letting the body emerge in that and just see how, how the awareness remains undisturbed as things come and they go. But often we invite people to pay attention to that field of sensations and remind them when their foot touches the ground that, they don't, that you don't experience foot touching a ground. You experience pressure, heaviness. You experience this underlying world of what sometimes is conceptually called the elements. Earth, air, fire, water, heat, cool, hardness, softness, uh, cohesion, moisture. In those momentary experiences, there is no body. There is no body. So even just attuning to the world of sensations, as the Buddha did, it begins to help us to see the difference between the reality, the very difficult to describe reality, and the concepts that we overlay, the the very useful concepts called leg and foot and arm and... If we didn't have these concepts, we couldn't have a conversation. I couldn't speak to you tonight. But meditatively, we look a little bit more deeply just to see that these concepts do not represent an ultimate truth, but what we call a conventional or relative truth. 
And so as the Buddha paid attention to the flow of sensations, it became clear that there, in the flow of sensations, there was, everything was changing. There was not any sensation you could hold to. And because it was changing and there was no sensation you could hold to, there was no place in there that you could say, this is me, this is mine. They were appearing and disappearing. Just like, a, like bubbles, like dreams. And it began to shake that, that idea that there, is some, there was some agent, there was some person in there who was feeling these sensations. Just saw that sensations were arising. And then he, as his mind got quiet, he saw that, that even the knowing of those sensations was also arising and passing. And then the same with moods. Moods are those things that, that seem to most define us. And they, and they seem so much like me, uh, especially the very angry ones, the very tender ones. It's just, we're, we're just so rich in emotion, all of us. And it is such a beautiful aspect of our experience. And unquestioning, uh, unquestion, we un, if we don't question that, it's very easy to say, this is me, this is mine. And conventionally speaking, my moods are not your moods. You've had lots of moods on this retreat. <laughs> and so have I. But if I've paid close attention to these moods, I have over, over a long time, and if you've paid close attention, just as the Buddha, you know, we are really walking the same path by paying attention. You will see that the moods that arise, the hindrances that Anne spoke about, all the mental states, all the moods, all the emotions, all the, the dramas, arose, unbidden to use Anna's word, took a shape in the body, a story in the mind, all spontaneous, came into existence, real in the sense that they appeared, but completely unreal in that they disappeared. Anything that appears and disappears cannot be said to be ultimately real and also cannot be said, anything that is cannot be said to be real cannot be said to be me or mine. So we see this, there's no self to be found in it. We see that the process of feeling is selfless. So the same, of course, happened with, the, with thoughts. Mara's little temptations. Of, you know, who do you think you are? Did you have any doubt during this retreat? <laughs> who do you think you are? Everybody else is getting enlightened except me. <laughs> I should be, I should have spent the week Sufi dancing. Or at a spa. You know, we've talked about that. This is just Mara wanting to keep you in, in ignorance, wanting to keep you unaware of, of this, this cycle 
of endlessly wandering, endlessly living in this imaginary world of, of me. See, the unfortunate thing about the imaginary world of me, the construction of the, of the identity or the, the view that this is me and these thoughts are me and the moods are me, is that once I am born into that, into that uh, version of myself, that story of me, I have, I have been born into the world of time. My identity, the sense of it, everything being me and mine, this I am, is the, is the number one cause of what's sometimes called the body of fear. Because once I, once I am, take on the identity with this body, once I take on the identity with this body, I realize that the body is, as Jack Kornfield describes it, it is a rent-a-body. <laughs> it doesn't last. It doesn't cooperate. It is born into existence according to conditions through no fault of mine, as I think of myself, through non-personal causes, parent, parental, you know, the whole everything that led to this. It's kind of mysterious, isn't it? Nobody could ever explain this, how we came into existence. Just to be for a moment in awe of that. And that's really what our practice does. Put us into that state of what Nagarjuna, the great, um, some consider the founder of Mahayana Buddhism, the ambiguity of ourselves. He said in one of his passages, you are not the same, nor are you different from that which you depend, which means that which made you. That which you, if it wasn't that way, you wouldn't be here and you wouldn't be you. He says, you're not the same, nor are you different from that which you depend. You are neither severed from that, nor forever fused with it. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhas who care for the world. This is a, a profound teaching that what any notion that we have that we exist independently apart from all of those causes and conditions that brought us into existence is a fundamental illusion. But it doesn't mean that you don't exist. Of course you exist. You're all here in living color. And it's, it is, you know, when I, every time I talk about this, I, and I look out into the room and I see you in living color. I'm, I'm just amazed at us. I'm amazed at the, at the beauty of us, the amazingness of us, the perfection of us, how none of us could be any different than the way we are, given all the forces that have shaped us. So uniquely is each of us expressing life. And so indescribable. Not one person here is really reducible to 
what I like to call the insulting characterizations that we usually use to describe ourselves. I'm not this. I'm too much of this. I should be more of this. I'm... In the face of your immediate experience, that could not be farther away. That one who you imagine yourself to be does not exist. It's just a story. It's a view about yourself. It's a momentary view of yourself, repeated over and over. The Buddha called that view Sakaya Ditti, self-view. We have lots of views. We have lots of opinions. But the one that keeps us bound on the wheel of confusion in without a clear understanding of where relief is to be found is the self-view. Because once we're born into, into that view of I am somebody, remember right now before you think, you don't even know you're a person. You're just here. You are just pure, pure life. And then forget the word life. You are, the best word I can think of, you are full, you are empty. You are indescribable. But once you enter into that idea of yourself, I am so-and-so, very useful for the sake of conversation, but that idea of yourself is just a thought. And once you're born into that thought and you mistaken you mistake that thought for this reality, you have entered the world of, of time. You've went, entered the world of the body, which is getting old. You've entered the world of time. Because as a person, as an identity as a person, once, you're, once you enter into that thought world, I hope this is making a little sense. Once you enter into that thought world, you have to construct an idea, a continuing idea that you've, you've come from somewhere else. You're, come, you're passing through here on your way to somewhere else. You've come from the past, you're passing through the present, and you're moving to the future. That's the story of us. And, and, we, can, and we all have beautiful stories. And we can understand what we mean, where I came from the past and who my parents were and who my grandparents were. were. And we want to embrace that. Our differences, our, our, our pains, our traumas, our cultural differences, our, our ancestry, our ancestral, um, mo- the momentum of ancestry as it flows through us. But still, that story of me that has come from the past moving through the present, on the way to the future, is a story of fear. Why is it a story of fear? Because it is a story when I'm in that story, not just in the pure presence that I am, when I'm in that story, I know that time is running out. I know that my well-being starts being dependent on getting to the end safely, getting to the end of the retreat safely, or as quick as I can for some people. (laughs) 
or as slow as I can. You know how the perception, it's, we've entered the world of the perception of time. And isn't it interesting in the retreat that some days the time seems endless and other days it's just gone. And it just shows that time is a construction of our mind. There really is no past except for thoughts arising in the present moment. A miracle that we can, we can refre- reflect in the present moment and create this idea of past. But the trick that our mind plays in this whole construction project of self is we create this idea of past and throw it somewhere behind us and think it actually exists. And then we do the same with the future, throw it somewhere in front of us. And then we get worried because that's where often where happiness is. And so a body gets tight and says, well, that's where I want to get to, to be happy. But it may not happen. No, I, 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 don't, I don't want to be glib about that because it's so painful to be in a state of suspended happiness. And it's born of confusion about where true happiness is to be found. It's to be found as we find over and over in our practice by not lifting out of this the only reality that has ever been, which is what we call now, after that word is gone. The past is now, the future is now, present is now. Reality is, is the only place we can find relief. As long as our mind projects, which is the, the self-idea projects, happiness ahead, uh, we're often in that state of fear, anxiety. What if things don't work out the way I want them to? So the Dharma, the, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha asks us to, uh, to, um, to go to the root of that of our problem, which the Buddha called uh, clinging and identifying with these ideas, with our bodies, with time, as a sense of for our sense of relief, and maybe his most uh, his most pithy instruction, his most simple and direct instruction that he gave after his awakening was this: He said, "Nothing whatsoever." should be clung to as I, me, or mine. Whoever has heard this teaching has heard the entirety of the, of the Dharma. Whoever has put this teaching to practice has practiced the whole Dharma. Whoever has realized the fruit of this teaching has realized the whole of the Dharma. Because not only do we deprive ourselves of the, the happiness of being present, the happiness of contentment, the happiness of the unconditioned, the uncreated happiness and well-being that's always here, available to us, not only that, but we keep again and again and again separating ourselves out from the flow of life, depriving ourselves of that deep connection with each other and um, just life in general. So this is what um, 
Again, what Nagarjuna, the person I quoted before, this is what he said. This is a poem that from Nagarjuna translated by Stephen Batchelor. It's called Someone. Blocked by confusion, I survive by forging a destiny through impulsive acts. Self-consciously, I enter situations where personality unfolds and world impacts on my sensitive soul. Personality creates self-consciousness, just as attention, the eye, and colorful shape trigger vision. Impact is the meeting of self-consciousness, senses, and the world. It leads to experience. I crave to have and to avoid. Craving makes me cling to sensuality, to opinions, to rules, to selves. Clinging is to insist on being someone. Not to cling is to be free to be no one. To be someone is to be self-conscious, impulsive, thinking, feeling, body, which is born, ages, dies, suffers, torment, grief, pain, depression, anxiety. Anguish emerges when someone is born. Impulsive acts are the, are the root of life. Fools are impulsive, but the wise see things as they are. When confusion stops through practicing insight, impulsive acts will cease. By stopping this, that won't happen. Anguish will end. So it is our practice, it is our practice to, of clarifying our understanding to see how moment to moment this view of self, Sakaya Ditti, is created. How it happens moment by moment. How, as the Buddha put it, through many births in the wandering on, how we're born into the little dramas. And when I say little dramas, I don't mean, I don't mean to take them lightly. Our dramas are compelling. They're painful. They drag us around. They, as Hafiz in one of his poems says, and this is kind of humorous, and he may mean something about something that you want, but I think I relate to this according to getting caught in, in self, in the false views of myself and where I need to go to be happy. Anna spoke of this last night, that, that demand that, that, and the belief that we can fulfill our desires. I was thinking as she was speaking last night of the, I think it's the Rumi poem where he says, failure is the key to the king or queendom within. Your prayer should be, break the legs of what I want to happen. Humiliate my desire. Eat me like candy. It's spring and finally I have no will. So it is our practice to see the way that we are born into this, uh, this search for, um, for happiness other than where we are. And it happens, as we talked about before, it happens in reaction to those six experiences that we have over and over. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. And 
and the feeling tones that arise with them. And when, it's, when there is pleasant, there's liking, and then there's, there's wanting, and then there's what's called bhava, there's becoming. And if that goes unnoticed, we literally enter into the, the drama of trying to get where I want to go. And I had a, I debated about where, whether, whether to speak about this, but uh, in my early retreats, I, um, I'll just back up a little bit and say that there, that all of us are conditioned in a unique way. Both universal, some things are unique or universal, but each one of us has a little different flavor. And there are generally three, what are called three character types that uh, most of us could fall into. And they, refl- they are reflective of the three poisons that uh, we spoke about before, the three common causes of suffering. Greed in the mind, hatred in the mind, and delusion. And each of us, is delusion in this way is called confusion or not seeing and, aver- and hatred is aversion, the aversive types, and then there are the greed types. And I would consider myself classically a greed type. And I know you can probably self-select whether you're an aversive type or a deluded type. The, often the, the idea goes if you're a, a greed type, you, you go into a hotel room and you always look at what, what bed you want. The aversive type sees what's wrong with the room. First thing, the, the deluded type says, you know, put me anywhere. I don't, you know, they don't even notice. <laughs> so as a greed type, the, when the going gets tough, the, um, the mind goes toward what I want to happen, what I want. And so being a practiced greed type, I came on retreat, and things are not easy on retreat. We're going against the stream, our normal stimulation, our normal uh, pleasures have been suspended, and we start, uh, you know, white knuckling it a little bit at times, and and it gets it gets really difficult. And I used to sit you know, the retreat that I'm thinking of. I'll tell you a couple different stories about it, and they they're really about how we're born into ourselves and how how we're born into these views of reality, of what I have to have to be happen, be happy, and how innocent that is, that process of, of believing that I, I, there's no way that I can be happy unless this happens. And this is a particular, the first one is a particularly silly example, and the second one was a really uh, deeply meaningful uh, example to me. The first one was that I, I was born in a state in the United States where where there is um, a real um, identity with football, with the college football. So from the time I was a little kid, I would follow the, the, the team of the, of the state, and that was really all that was going on in this particular state. And so it was the, <laughs> it was the religion of the state, really. It was the, commu- it was the biggest community. Somebody say something? Nebraska. Cornhusker State. (laughs) So quite innocently, as I was sitting on retreat, it came closer to 
uh, Thanksgiving. This is vintage 1978 or 79. Closer to Thanksgiving, and every year at Thanksgiving was the annual uh, football game against their arch rival. And the thought came into my mind in one of those moments where it may have been a little unpleasant. said, God, I'd love to watch that football game. <laughs> one thing led to another. First, I started to engage my teacher in the, in the question. <laughs> and I may have, I may have, uh, I may have survived without going to watch the game had there not been somebody who had passed by the door of the room that I was having my interview, somebody who had been on retreat but had had to stop practicing because their girlfriend who was on retreat was pregnant and he needed to attend to her, he overheard my conversation and I can't believe he did it, but he wrote me a note and said, I'll drive you. (laughs) (laughs) And so once it got ignited on that level, there was, you know, there was no stopping. And so the whole construction of me going from the past through the present on my way to get to that football game, no matter what, but it required driving 40 miles to a little motel in Amherst, Massachusetts, which I did. Went to the game, watched the game, and then, of course, having been born into that drama, you have to live it out unless you really see what your mind is doing clearly. But once you live it out, then there is, as with all pleasurable moments, all little incarnations that you enter into whatever, you know, any, whatever it is that you want, it passes. But what, what often happens right after is that you were born into, again, into a feeling of, I was, I'll speak for myself, born into self-consciousness, embarrassment, shame. Here I am 40 miles away and the experience is completely unsatisfactory and empty. And fortunately, it, it, uh, it showed me the power of the, of the wanting mind and, and it's given me, a, a per, perhaps for you, a useful story um, that I've used over the years. And so have many other, a lot of my colleagues have used it and, and <laughs> when, I hear, when I hear it reflected back to me, it sounds nothing like what actually happened, but, <laughs> but never left. But the second story is that uh, being a greed type, which I can, I can, I can, I'm pretty comfortable with that identity now. It's just expresses a common tendency of mine. At the time, I also, uh, at a different retreat, about two, two months into a retreat, I was sitting in my little room at Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, same place, and I was doing all my sitting and most of my walking in the room, just being there all the time. And in, that, in the process of sitting there, not only was, was the world getting deconstructed, it was, not only was I moving from the world of concepts to this reality that's not so easy to describe, but I was also simultaneously regressing, getting really, my heart was opening so much and so tenderized that I felt like I was one year old. And I had, I had been thinking throughout the retreat and maybe throughout the last years once I'd started practice, you know, this I'm a greed type. 
And I, would, I felt a little bit ashamed of, of this identity of uh, being, you know, I had created this whole thing. I'm greedy, you know, I'm a greed type. And because I would also notice that when, when I sat in this room that I had way more stuff than I needed. I had surrounded myself with stuff and I'd often, when the going got tough, I would st- see the different clothes hanging from the rack. I didn't have a closet, so they're right out there in the room looking at me. And my mind would start fantasizing about having more of that. I was going to buy another one of that. And there was a little judgment of it. And that just that created even more identification with it because there was a real reaction to it as I, the longer I practiced. But then as I began to unpeel, there was that moment in the retreat where, uh, where I was just so raw so raw, so open, so undefinable, really, in that moment, literally like one-year-old, that I knew that I needed to be held. I needed to be held, and there was obviously nobody to hold me there. This is really an opportunity on retreat to develop this capacity to, of self-compassion, self-holding. So what did I do? I rolled off my cushion onto my mattress, with, which I was sitting on, took the pillow, the zafu and the pillows that I had with me, wrapped myself in the pillows and just started to, to wail. And while I was there and everything seemed so overwhelming and so painful, I looked up at all my stuff and had this flash of realization. That has been how that whole identity, the greed type, that whole tendency, that whole view of myself was born not because I'm a greedy person, was because that was the most innocent way, the most primitive way that I could hold myself. And I realized that all that stuff was just, and all my strategies for trying to deal with suffering in the, all my stupid strategies, all my ignorant ones, were just ways that I was trying to care for myself. And that moment, there was a crack in the heart. And as Anna shared that, and the light came in. And from that day forth, the default reaction when I see, see suffering in my own mind is to come to my rescue. And I didn't know anything about that before. So that can happen. And, it, and that whole identity, I saw that the identi- the, our, all of our identity views, all the stories that we create of ourselves, they come so innocently. They come based on on our experiences that came unbidden in our lives. And we just dealt with them the best we could. But, mo- but all of us, to some degree, have landed in mistaken views about ourselves. And we've all fallen into that, that case of mistaken identity. Wow. From Forrest Gump, he says, some people like me are born idiots, but many more become stupider as they go along. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it is a, a tremendous gift to, to wake up out of that, um, to see through the self-illusion, to come out of that, um, that confusion and the fact that you're here says that uh, something has awakened in you and that you, you are, in some ways, you're, you've entered the stream. You're bound to, you're bound to um, 
to awaken. Here's from Peter Matheson. He says, Soon the child's eye is clouded over by ideas and opinions, preconceptions and abstractions. Simple free being becomes encrusted with the burdensome armor of the ego. Not until years later does an instinct come that a vital sense of mystery has been withdrawn. The sun glints through the pines and the heart is pierced in a moment of beauty and strange pain like a memory of paradise. After that day, we become seekers. So our practice is really about seeing through the illusion of ourselves, which is really about uh, unleashing our love, really about making ourselves more available to this world that we are so intimately apart from. Um, Hafiz wrote a beautiful poem called Admit Something. He says, everyone you see, you say to them, love me, love me. Of course, you don't say this out loud. Otherwise, someone would call the cops. (laughs) Still, though, think about this, this great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one with the full moon in each eye? That is always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is longing to hear. But first we have to recognize. As uh, Hafiz put it, you have to learn to recognize the counterfeit coins, he puts it. Learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. We have to see the difference. The counterfeit coins are these ideas about ourselves that although they reflect like the idea of myself as a greedy person, they reflect my my story, my history. But that characterization could no more capture who and what I am. They they are insulting. They They are not the vividness of my being and the vividness of you. They are not the full moon that you are. As, as James J. Audubon put it, at least my understanding is that's who said it, he says, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guide book says, believe the bird. <laughs> so I'll close with a, with a poem from Derek Walcott many of you have heard before, called Love After Love. I think I'll change the wording too. No, I won't. I'll just leave it. (laughs) The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror 
and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. May all beings be free. May all beings see clearly. May all beings see through the self-illusion. Thanks for your attention. Thirty minutes for enjoying being nobody. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.